Good morning, Crossroads. It is good to be here on this snowy, snowy day. These are the days that separate natives from everybody else, right? So like, I imagine that the natives are here. In fact, on my way in today, there was a guy mountain biking down Huron Street, and I thought, that's Colorado right there, right? Like, that guy's got a place to go. Well, I want to welcome those of you at Thornton and Fort Lupton online, wherever you may be. If you're new with us, welcome to Crossroads Church today. My name is Matt Manning, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to open God's Word with you as we continue to work worship uh, God in that way today. Uh, kind of show of hands, all three of our campuses, how many of you were here last week? Just raise your hand if you were here last week. Yeah, if you missed last week, last week was super great. We turned off all the technology and we gave the opportunity to Jared, James, and Trevor, our three campus pastors, to preach a message and just go campus specific uh, for one week. And it was so cool hearing their hearts and their passion, their vision to see Jesus lifted up in this church for their campuses. And, and as I sat there last week, particularly here at North Glen campus where I was, I was just so proud of our campus pastors, that when it comes to uh, campus pastoring, uh, one of the things that many people think about is that, like, just if you're a pastor, you preach, and that's not actually the case uh, all the time. In fact, our campus pastors, we ask them to be really great leaders and really good shepherds uh, at their campuses. In preaching, they get to do a little bit, but it's totally out of their comfort zone, and last week, they just knocked it out of the park. And so, would you just thank them with me today? Yeah, all three of our campuses, just thank yeah, they did such an awesome God. I am so grateful for those guys, and, um, and I'm just so proud of them. It's just so awesome to see. Well, today, um, I'm pumped to get into what God has for us as we uh, really begin our new series in uh, the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to be, and so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there and get ready to be there. Uh, today, like I said, we're starting this new series in the Gospel of Luke, and if you're new around here, one of our rhythms at Crossroads Church is to preach shorter, kind of topical series where we take a topic of the Bible and look at what God has to say about it. Those are typically shorter series that we do in the summer, around December into January. January. And then during the school year, during the semesters of the school year, our rhythm is to take a kind of longer looks at books of the Bible, where we'll just take a book of the Bible and just walk through it uh, slowly and just have everything that God wants to share with us to share with us. And so last fall, we started uh, the series in Luke with Luke season one is what we called it, where it was really this introduction to this promised king. We walked through the first four chapters of that book, getting an introduction of who Jesus is and, and how Luke sets this all up. And this this spring, we are jumping back into Luke, season two, and we're calling this season The Mission Begins. And so just in case you missed season one of Luke, I'm just going to do like the six and a half minute recap, all right, to catch you back up with where we're at. That when it comes to Luke, this gospel, this book of Luke, Luke is one of the most earliest accounts of Jesus's life that we have. And it's named after the guy who wrote it, this man named Luke, who is this remarkable figure in history. That Luke, fascinatingly, is not a Hebrew like most of the people in our Bibles that we read about, but in fact, he's a Gentile. He was born in a city called Antioch. He didn't come to faith until his 20s, and most likely, he never knew Jesus. He never saw Jesus walk on this earth. He never saw Jesus do miracles. He was much like us, that all of the information and all of the stuff that he learned about Jesus was from other people. That Luke was an incredibly educated man. He was a medical doctor by profession. He was an ancient doctor. In the uh, historical world, he's a renowned historian, both in the secular world and also in the Christian world still to this day. And by calling, he was a missionary. 
Now, if you look up Luke in our history books, one of the things that you'll find out about Luke is that he's called the follower of followers. Again, this means that he didn't follow Jesus directly, that he, he didn't walk with Jesus when Jesus walked on this earth, but instead he was a disciple to the guys that we call apostles. Now, the apostles were the guys that walked with Jesus. They were like the original disciples, those who, who followed and walked with Jesus. And Luke was one of their disciples. And so Luke knew some of the people that we read here. He knew Matthew, who knew James, he knew Peter, he knew John. But the one that he hung with the most, the disciple that he hung with the most, or the apostle, was the apostle Paul. In fact, he traveled with apostle Paul, the apostle Paul, on his missionary journeys as the apostle took the good news of Jesus all around the world, that Luke was right there with him. Him, recording everything that Paul said, recording the experiences that he had, so that, so that he would be able to put it into a story later on. That you may or may not know this about Luke, but Luke is our greatest contributor in the New Testament. Listen, nobody, nobody has written more about the life of Jesus or this thing that we call the church than Luke. That for every single one of us, that the, the image and the view that we have of Jesus and church is largely made up because of Luke's writing. This faithful, faithful man who spent part of his life recording real life eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus so that when we open our Bibles some 2,000 years later, that we can have confidence that this is real. In fact, what makes Luke's gospel so unique is this. That much of our Bible, when you read a book, it's actually written to a group of people. But what's unique about Luke is that he's not writing to a group of people, but he's in fact just writing to one man, a man named Theophilus. And the whole reason that he's writing to this guy named Theophilus is to show him that the story of Jesus isn't just reserved for ancient history and books, but that the story of Jesus is actually the fulfillment of the story of God in the whole world. That Luke writes and begins his gospel by saying this, that Theophilus, I'm writing these things to you so that you would have certainty, this unmovable, unshakable confidence in the things that you've been taught about Jesus. And so as we approach the gospel of Luke, we do so in the same manner 2,000 years later, that Luke has written this so that you and I would have this immovable, unshakable confidence in the things that we've been taught about Jesus. And so the account of Luke begins begins with an introduction of two birth stories. Two birth stories of a baby boy named John and a baby boy named Jesus. And at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, we're introduced to an old priest named Zachariah and a young, virgin, unmarried girl named Mary. And both of these two people have these, have these unique, unlikely encounters with an angel, where this angel appears to them individually and says to them that you are going to have a baby boy. Now, what makes this so unusual is that Zachariah is in his old age. Him and his wife are, are way past childbearing years. Mary is not yet married. She is, she, is not, she is betrothed to a man, but she is not yet with him. And the angel comes to them and says, you are both going to have a boy. And the promise is fulfilled. And Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth have a baby boy, and they name him John. We come to know him as John the Baptist. Mary gives birth to a baby boy named Jesus. And what's so fascinating of these, when it comes to these birth stories is that Luke goes to incredible, incredible lengths to show us that these boys have Old Testament promises, ancient promises about them in the Old Testament as a way of previewing what their lives are going to be. That John the Baptist, these, these ancient uh, promises of the Old Testament, speak of John the Baptist in such a way that he's going to be the messenger of the Savior for the entire world. That he's going to be the messenger that prepares the way for the coming Messiah. 
that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the King, who will bring God's blessing, the one who Israel has been waiting for all the way since Genesis chapter 3. Well, after the birth stories, we're given this crazy scene where Mary takes Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. And there, Luke introduces us to two prophets, Anna and Simeon, these two prophets that apparently just hang out at the temple all the time. And as Mary brings Jesus to the temple at about six weeks old to dedicate him, as she's walking up to the priest, Simeon sees Jesus and recognizes who it is that he is. And Simeon rushes over, takes baby Jesus from Mary, holds him up, starts singing a song, and says, Now I have seen salvation, that this baby is the light to the world. And upon that declaration, Luke unfolds the rest of the story for us. That Luke fast-forwards into Jesus' adult life, and he does so by telling us what John the Baptist is up to. He tells us that John has started a ministry of of renewal, a ministry of repentance along the, the banks of the Jordan. That he's calling for a new repentant Israel, and for whoever is willing to repent, that they will get dunked or baptized into the Jordan River. That John has this going on for for days, maybe even months, and eventually Jesus comes over the hillside and meets John. Immediately John realizes who this Jesus is. He realizes that this is the leader of the new Israel, that this is the leader of the kingdom of God that is coming. He baptizes Jesus, and in his baptism, it's a marking, an anointing of who Jesus is as this leader. And as John pulls Jesus up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. The heavens open, and the booming voice of God speaks out that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's this marking, this anointing of who Jesus is. Out of that story, Luke takes us to Jesus' family tree. It's a beautiful picture of, of God's covenant promises through the, through the history, the fulfillment of God's covenant promises through the history of Israel. That he takes Jesus' lineage not all the way just back to Adam, but all the way back to God. And as he traces through this family tree, we see that Jesus is the promised king of David. We see that Jesus is the promised blessing of Abraham, the promised sacrifice of Noah, the promised, uh, uh, the promised savior of all of humanity, and the son of of God. This genealogy that Luke shares with us, the one that we typically skip over, is a breathtaking picture of God's faithfulness and his sovereignty throughout the ages. Out of that genealogy, Luke shares with us about Jesus being led into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested by the devil, by Satan. It's in this moment, after having been declared the Son of God, shown through the genealogy that Jesus is the Son of God, it's right here in the wilderness where Jesus' sonship will be tested and ultimately validated. As Jesus comes up out of that wilderness, Luke tells us that he, that he comes out of the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit. And it's right here where Jesus' ministry officially begins. It's right here where Jesus launches his mission into the world. It's right here where season two begins for us. And so if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, is where we're going to begin. It says, And he, this is Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found a place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, 
and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That this is a remarkably important event in Jesus' life. That when we step back and think of the important events in Jesus' life, oftentimes we think of the cross, very important. We think of Jesus doing the miracles of healing. We think of Jesus feeding the 5,000, all important, remarkable events. But this event right here, this important event, the first time that Jesus goes public with his ministry, he declares what his mission to this world is all about. Now listen, Jesus is about to give us the answer to the most critical and most important question that we could ever ask. Why did Jesus come into this earth? And as we look through the history of of the world, we see that that question is debated, widely debated, of why Jesus came. Everything from good moral teacher to savor of the environment to savor of people. And yet, we don't have to wonder why Jesus came into this world. In fact, Jesus tells us by reading from the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah 61. Now listen, Isaiah 61 is a passage that is all about what the Old Testament calls the year of the Lord's favor or the year of Jubilee. This is big. Because if we're to understand why Jesus came into this world, we have to understand what the year of Jubilee is all about. Because that's what Isaiah 61 is. So, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to everyone's favorite book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus, all right? Leviticus 25. If you're not familiar where Leviticus is, just start at the beginning of your Bible. The first book that you'll find is Genesis. Flip your pages. Eventually, you get to Exodus, two very exciting books, all right? And then you're going to get eventually to the third book of the Bible, this strange book that we call Leviticus, all right? It's where every good Bible reader goes to die, all right? Leviticus chapter 25. Now, in Leviticus chapter 25, speaks about the year of Jubilee. Now, in part today, my goal is to help make sense of this book, this book of Leviticus, and to show you why it's valuable even today, and in doing so, hoping that you'll see its value so that when you read it on your own, you do not end up in the boneyard of Leviticus, okay? So, when it comes to the first five books of the Bible, we call these books the Torah. And the Torah is all about God's story with the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people. And the book of Leviticus is the book, is a book that teaches all about what it looks like for the Israelites pre-Jesus to be clean, pure, holy before God. See, that's the problem. From the very beginning of the scriptures, from the very beginning of the Bible, we have this God who is ultimately holy and we who are not. We have God who is pure, clean, and holy, and righteous, and we have us who is not. We are unclean, we are unpure, we are not holy. That's the problem of the scriptures. And the question is, is how does an unholy Hebrew people stand before or approach a holy God? That's the question that Leviticus is answering. 
This is what it looks like to be holy. This is what it looks like to be clean, pre-Jesus. We call Leviticus the book of the law. And in it, we have animal sacrifices. We start to understand what the priestly duties were all about. We see what these sacred days, there's these festival days that are sacred. We have special events. And all of this was put in place in the book of Leviticus so that the people of Israel could be holy, clean, pure before God and be able to approach and stand before God. Now, one of those sacred events, one of those sacred events is found in Leviticus chapter 25, and it's called the year of Jubilee. I'm just going to read a few verses out of Leviticus chapter 25, starting in verse 8, okay? Moses writes these words. He says, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your lands. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Now, there is a lot there. And maybe one day I will preach a whole series through the book of Leviticus and attempt to kill this church. But today, today, know what this point, this is the point. That the year of jubilee was basically this thing that happened every 50 years. It was designed to be an entire year of resting in God, an entire year of what we call Sabbath. That's what the year of Jubilee was all about. And in this special year of Jubilee, some things would happen. That all of the slaves would be set free. All of the debts would be forgiven. And if you had land in your family that you had lost to someone else, whether you sold it or you lost it or however, if you had family land that you had lost, it would be given back to you. It was like this total reset for everyone in Israel, in the nation of Israel, that every 50 years, the year of Jubilee was like this beacon of hope that everything would be reset, that everything would come back to an Eden-like state where all would be forgiven and freedom would be found. Now, as we read through the Old Testament, the prophets of, of, our, of our Old Testament begin to do something significant. They, they begin to do something in, in a very unique way around the year of Jubilee. That the prophets start to take this beacon of hope, this, this reset, this Jubilee hope, and they start to speak about it, not just in, in terms of every 50 years, but they start to talk about it as a future hope for Israel and really for all of humankind where the world would get this fresh restart. That this jubilee hope for all of the world became known in the prophets as the year of the Lord's favor. So fast forward to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah is like the big dog prophet of the Old Testament. He was like the granddaddy of all of the prophets for the Hebrew people. And in Isaiah chapter 49, we have Isaiah prophesying about someone that he calls the Lord's servant. And Isaiah says that this Lord's servant is coming into the future. In the future, the Lord's servant will be here. And Isaiah describes what it'll be, uh, what this person will be, and he says that this Lord's servant will be anointed. Now, that word anointed is what prophets did to kings. That when there was a new king of Israel, the prophets would come to that king and they would anoint him or mark him as the chosen one. 
And Isaiah says that this Lord's servant who's coming will be anointed. And this anointed one will be Israel, that, that he will be on mission to the Hebrew people, that he will be a light for the entire world. And when he comes, he will be announcing the restoration or the time of the Lord's favor, the jubilee hope where all people are released. Now, all of this language in Isaiah 49 around the Lord's servant is jubilee language. It's Leviticus chapter 25 language. And yet what Isaiah is prophesying about is not the 50-year jubilee, but rather the ultimate jubilee where there is a total reset and people are released from their sin and liberated to live with God. So fast forward to Isaiah 61, the place in which Jesus reads. It's here in Isaiah 61 where every Hebrew person saw and understood that Isaiah 61 was the culmination of this ultimate jubilee. That Isaiah 61 was the culmination of what all the prophets had talked about, about this ultimate future jubilee hope, this ultimate jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, the final rest. For the, for the Hebrew people, it's the thing that they had put all of their hope in, that they were looking forward to this anointed servant who would come to proclaim the good news of the Lord, to good news to the poor, who would come to set the captives free, to proclaim that this is the year of the Lord's favor. In a nutshell, Isaiah 61 is this anointed Lord's servant, this king-like person who will restore all of humanity into walking closely with God. It's the thing that all of the people of Israel had been waiting on throughout the whole Old Testament, through thousands upon thousands of years, they've been waiting on this moment. So don't miss this. See Jesus here on his own terms. Jesus walks into his hometown of Nazareth, having been anointed, marked by the prophet John as the leader of this new kingdom. And he sits down in synagogue that day and he reads that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll, he gives it to the attendant, he sits down and he says to the people, today this scripture... The scripture that you've been waiting on for thousands upon thousands of years, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Mic drop moments. In other words, the thing that you've been waiting for, the great promise of the prophets, the ultimate jubilee has begun. The final rest is here, that I'm bringing it into existence, that I am the anointed servant of Isaiah chapter 61. And come on, no one saw this coming. Right? I mean, in just a few verses, they go, isn't this Joseph's boy? Don't we know his brothers? It's this guy who's bringing the ultimate jubilee. In fact, by the time we get to the end of chapter 4, the people of Nazareth are trying to kill the hometown boy. It's a crazy, crazy scene. Jesus says, look, I am the anointed king coming to proclaim the good news to the poor and to bring about the year of God's favor. That's my mission. That's what Luke wants us to see, that Jesus is beginning his mission by proclaiming the good news to the poor. And the driver of that mission, the driver of that mission to the poor revolves around the word liberty. Do you see it? You heard it twice in Jesus' reading. Liberty to the captives and liberty to the oppressed. 
Now, just to like geek out on you for a second, that Greek word there for liberty is the Greek word aphasis, aphasis. And aphasis literally means to let go or release. It's the Greek word that has the same meaning of the Hebrew word in Leviticus chapter 25 that means to let go. That all debts are to be let go, to be released. That slaves are to be let go, that they are to be released. That if you have land that is someone else's family's land, that you are to let it go, that you are to release it. That aphasis was the common Greek word used to mean that I'm letting you go from something that you owe me. Or I'm letting you go from the way that you have wronged me. Now, this is big for us because in English, we don't speak this way, do we? We don't say that I'm letting you go because you have wronged me. We say, I forgive you. I forgive you. Almost everywhere else in our New Testament where aphasis is used, it is translated to forgive. And this is where Jesus' mission becomes so huge for us. This is the so what. The year of the Lord's favor was about releasing us from owing God. Now listen, you may not think that you owe God, but you owe God. Because of your sin, you have wronged God. You have committed high treason to the God of the universe, that you have wronged the creator who created you. And your sin has made you poor. Your sin has made you a captive. Your sin has made you blind. Your sin has made you oppressed. And the Bible says that because of those wrongs, because of those sins, that ultimately the payment for those sins is ultimate eternal death. And Jesus comes on the scene here in Luke chapter 4 and he says, look, on this day, you don't owe me anymore. If you're willing to come to me and trust me, all is forgiven. You don't owe God anymore. You are free. You're no longer slaves. You're no longer in debts. You are at liberty. You are forgiven. That this is the good news. You trust Jesus and you are forgiven. You don't owe God anymore. Ultimate jubilee that the prophets spoke about in the Old Testament, that's yours. That you can stop trying to pay back God. You can stop thinking, well, if I just got my life right, if I could just get my stuff in order, then I could come to God. Jesus says, none of that. None of that. You can stop trying to pay back God because the reality is is that you can never pay back God. You just rest in the fact that you don't owe God anymore. And yet it doesn't stop there. The implications of this passage are so huge for us. And in the church, I'm just going to warn you, we get a little uncomfortable around this idea. Because we like to separate what I would call the spiritual verbal gospel from the social gospel. But what we see lived out in Jesus' Jubilee tour, specifically in the next five chapters, where our faces is used 12 times, is that to proclaim the full gospel of Jesus certainly means release from cosmic sin and ultimate death. Oh yes, it means that. But it also means release from physical bondage where the physically blind come to see, and the physical captives are are set free, and the poor are taken care of. We separate a social gospel from a proclaimed spiritual gospel, and in the church, we create a false dichotomy that did not live in Jesus' mind. 
See, in Jesus' reading of Isaiah 61 here, he actually slips in a line from Isaiah 58. The line is this, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Do you see that in your Bibles? That line is not from Isaiah 61. That is Isaiah 58, verse 6. And when we read that, we have to ask the question, did Jesus misread? Did he misread Isaiah 61? No. No, he slipped that line in there intentionally. That he wants us to see something from it. That he he wants to drive home a point for us. See, in Isaiah 58, it's all about the prophet Isaiah hammering the Hebrew people for their defilement of the Sabbath. I mean, he is just pounding on them because of their defilement of the Sabbath. Now, the year of Jubilee was the year of Sabbath. It was the year of rest. The ultimate Jubilee is us resting in God. In Isaiah 58, Isaiah is mad about the defilement of the Sabbath and the Hebrew people because of their unwillingness to feed the poor. He says, you think that you're practicing Sabbath. You think that you're doing good by God. But actually, you're walking by the homeless and you're walking by the naked and you're not doing anything for them. Shame on you. I mean, he's so angry, he can just like throat punch the people. That's how mad he is in Isaiah 58. And then he says, isn't this what true Sabbath looks like? Isn't this what real resting in God looks like? Verse 7, is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into your house. And when you see the naked, to cover him. And not to hide yourself from your own flesh. And then he says to the people of God, if you can see ultimate rest in God in this way. And then he describes what this way is. Verse 8. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall spring up speedily. And your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer, Here I am. This is beautiful Genesis 1 imagery. This is going all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God is with us. In other words, what Jesus is looking at, or Isaiah is saying here, is that if you... The people of God understand rightly and do rightly that you get a taste of Eden, that you get a taste of the world before sin, that you get to live the abundant life that is yours now, that you get the ultimate jubilee now. Back to Jesus. His points in pointing us to Isaiah 58 is that his mission, both spiritually and socially, physically, is the mission of God's people. That it's God's people who bring the good news to the poor. It's God's people who work to free the captives. It's God's people who help the blind see. It's God's people who bring liberty and freedom to the oppressed. That we are living in the year of the Lord's favor. And we are God's people. That we are the church. Listen to me. The church is not a building that we come to. That we are the church. That the church is an identity that we have. A movement of people who have been marked in their baptism as chosen ones. To carry out the mission, Jesus' mission, to a broken world. The way that we say it here at Crossroads is to serve people toward and connect people to Jesus. That our mission is God's mission. 
That we believe that God has called us to something more than a consumeristic, self-centered mindset where we come together and get all that we can. That we are not consumers. That Jesus came to, to free us, to liberate us. And he calls us in that freedom to be contributors to the greatest mission in the history of the earth. That we are his church and we've got a mission. We've got a calling. That you are Crossroads Church and you exist. Listen, you exist to proclaim the good news to the poor and the year of the Lord's favor. See, what Jesus is inviting us into is so rad. It is so good. Let us be courageous and bold to live out the mission that God has given to us. Would you pray with me? Father, Lord, as we see your mission and realize the significance of, of you coming into this world, Lord, I pray that we would not let that pass too lightly. Lord, that we would see that the mission that Jesus came into this world with to bring good news to the poor, to those who are sinners and far away from God, Lord, that we would carry that mission into our world in this day. Lord, that we would carry the jubilee hope that for those who trust in Jesus do not owe him anymore, that God has forgiven us, that we do not owe him anymore. Lord, there is no greater news than that. That in your sovereignty and in your faithfulness and in your goodness, you chose to put all of our sin, all of our treason on your son so that we could live with hope, that we could have life, the abundant life, even on this day. And so, Lord, as your church, God, help us see, Lord, that, that the church is not just buildings that we come to, but, Lord, that we're a part of a movement Lord, we're a part of a, the jubilee hope. Lord, help us not lose sight of that. Help us live boldly in that. Help us live courageously in that. In those moments, Lord, where we don't, when we're ashamed, Lord, I pray that you would lift us up and that we would see hope. And Lord, I pray, Lord, as we live in the world around, that we would know what ultimate rest in you looks like. Lord, that it's not about trying to, trying to, make ourselves worthy before you. It's Isaiah in his prophecy that says even our greatest deeds are nothing but dirty rags before you. That we cannot be good enough. That we need your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. We need your jubilee hope to fall upon us. And so God, I know that there may be some in this room, Lord, and in our campuses who have, who have never experienced the jubilee hope who don't know what it's like to rest in you, who live their lives trying to do it their own way, trying time and time again to, to make themselves worthy, falling short every single time. And Lord, that is, that is a desperate life. Lord, that is a tiresome life. And it was you, Jesus, who said that when our burdens are heavy, when we figure out that we can't do it on our own, to come to you and that you will give us rest, that you will give us Sabbath, that you will give us Jubilee. And so, Lord, for those in our spaces today, Lord, who have not yet trusted you, Lord, the prayer is simple. Lord, it's just standing before you, professing that, that I am a sinner. 
in need of your grace and your mercy. That you are Lord of my life and I fall before the cross, knowing that it's there on the cross that you died, three days later raising again, so that I might have life, and that I give my life to you as, as Lord and Savior, meaning I'm going to do everything that I can to live out your mission, the mission that you've given me. And so, Lord, for all of those who are praying that prayer right now, Lord, I pray your favor upon them and your blessing on them this day. Lord, would you wrap your arms around them as they enter into your family. And all of God's people said, amen. All right, thanks, Pastor Matt. Luke sees.